thank you to our quizzers. We really appreciate you guys. You guys are also really fast at going up and down the, the platform, too. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn the, to the book of Judges, chapter 17. Judges, chapter 17. And while you're turning there, just a, another announcement. We have a couple resources in the book nook. I love that name, the book nook, that you can take advantage of. Uh, one is a devotional called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die by John Piper. It's a suggested donation of $6. And uh, the, the idea is that you would start reading this today and read one reason a day for 50 days, culminating on Easter Sunday. And they're not very long readings. Each one is about a page to two pages. So very doable and very devotional. So I encourage you to check that out. Another one is called Seek God for the City. Uh, we've been doing this resource every year for a while here at First Mish. Uh, it's a prayer guide. This one is free. And actually, they encourage you to start not today, but uh, February the 26th, which I believe is Wednesday, and go through Palm Sunday. And this one's free in the book nook as well. So we encourage you to check those out. All right, let's jump into the text because it is going to get weirder and stranger if it hasn't been strange enough in the book of Judges um, most people know about guys like Samson and Gideon in the book of Judges. A lot of people don't know about these stories that we're going to read here and go through in a little bit. Um, it's going to get weirder and really sadder and darker in Israel's time. And I want you to try to answer the question as we read this, how does this connect, how does this story connect with our time today? It may seem weird and far and remote, but how does it actually apply and connect to us today? So let me start reading uh, there at verse 1. It says, Now a man named Micah, and we haven't met this Micah yet, from the hill country of Ephraim, said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver, that's 30 pounds of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you my son. Anything weird about this passage so far? <laughs> so who did he steal the silver from again? His mom. And how does his mom react? The Lord bless you. That's really strange. If you look up here on screen, this is the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, this is Israel at the time. That green part is the part that they have occupied so far. And they needed to conquer and occupy more of this, but they failed to do so. The hill country of Ephraim is right in this middle region right here, showing us that what's taking place is right in the heart of Israel. And it's really strange because the son takes money from his mom, and he only gives it back because she had uttered a curse, and he heard it, so he's a little bit superstitious, maybe magical, thinking, you know what, I need to give this money back, or a curse could come on me. And she responds even stranger, the Lord bless you, which I'm sure she was thankful for the money back, but that's not really discipline. That's not accountability. <laughs> that's not taking responsibility for your actions. Let's keep going, verse 3. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So did you catch that? She is dedicating this silver to whom? The Lord by making an idol. A problem here? Yes, verse four. 
So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took not the 1,100, but only 200 shekels of silver. So I guess she didn't really consecrate all of it to the Lord. And gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. And then this verse will be repeated a lot throughout our ending section. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So there's a problem going on. Micah has violated at least four of the Ten Commandments, if you think of it that way. He has stolen. That's commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. He has dishonored his parents by taking their money. That's commandment number five, thou shalt honor your parents. And then he's broken commandments number one and number two. Number one is thou shalt have no other gods before me. He is installing other gods in addition to Yahweh or the God of the Bible. And then number, the second commandment of the Bible says you should not make an image and worship that image. You shouldn't make God in an image, and he's violating that as well. Let's keep going on. Verse 7. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. So remember the Levites, they are the priests in Israel. Only that specific tribe, the Levites, could be a priest and serve in the tabernacle before God. And this Levite is wandering, apparently probably looking for work of some kind. Verse 10, then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him because he liked the salary and the benefits package. <laughs> and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said this, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. So we see a lot of problems here. Micah and his mom install their own idol and shrine and ephod, which is a priestly garment. They first have their son, his son, Micah's son, be a priest. But then they find a Levite who were dedicated to serve the Lord. And he's like, you know what? If I can get one of those guys to be my priest, my own personal priest, then I know things will go well for me. So do you see a couple ways how this connects to our time? Do you see a couple big problems? I know I do. I want to talk about two big problems I see in this text, and then we'll look at chapter 18 because it just continues the story. The first problem we see in this text is what theologians call syncretism. Say that with me. Syncretism. You ever heard of that word before? Syncretism, here's the definition. It is the mixing of two or more religious beliefs into a new belief system. So it's taking two or more religious beliefs and mixing them together. So really you have a new mixture, kind of a new religious soup or stew. And Micah is doing that here because they have their own household gods. They've made a new god of silver to worship God. They are talking about the Lord and actually using the covenant name of God. And they're kind of mixing all this stuff together into this big religious pot. Do we ever struggle with syncretism in our day of taking Christianity and mixing in other things 
And the answer is, of course. And this is much easier to see in other cultures because missionaries will go to other countries, other cultures, and as people come to faith in Christ, they'll often believe in Christ, but still mix in some of their former beliefs. So for instance, if you're in a culture that worships your ancestors, then you may believe in Jesus and worship him, but you may also worship your ancestors. That's syncretism, and that's a problem. Or if you're in another culture that believes in voodoo and witchcraft, you may believe in Jesus and go to your local pastor for advice, and you also may go to your local witch doctor for advice, and that's a problem. Now, some of those examples are more obvious, but some can be really challenging as missionaries wrestle with, you know, what can you take from your old belief system and what can you not? So, for instance, if you are a convert from Islam to Christianity, can you still be a Christian and believe at some level in the five pillars of Islam? Or can you still be a Christian and can you still attend your local mosque occasionally because you're worshiping God? I mean, missionaries struggle and debate and wrestle with this syncretism thing. Now, that's other countries and other cultures. Do we have syncretism here in the U.S. of A.? Do we have syncretism here in Adams County or Wells County, wherever you're from, Jay County? You bet. In fact, there was a study done a couple years ago in 2018 by the Pew Research Group, and they were trying to figure out among Christians how many Christians believe in and incorporate New Age beliefs. You ever heard of New Age? And so what they found out was they divided Christians into seven different types of groups from the least committed Christians to the most committed Christians. And even among the most committed Christians, guess what they found out about what they believe? They found out that one-third of that most committed group believed it was okay to visit a psychic. They found out of that most committed group that one-fifth believed in some form of reincarnation where you die and you'll come back as another person or maybe an animal if you were really bad. They found out that one-fifth believed in the power of crystals and energy. And so even as a pastor, I see some of this. In fact, one of the most common beliefs that I see people take and incorporate to Christianity is the belief of karma. You heard of that before? What goes around comes around. But is karma a biblical belief? Technically, no. <laughs> we believe in a personal God, a God who can bring justice for sure, but it's not some force called karma. Think of some other ways that we incorporate things into Christianity and make a religious stew. We were brainstorming as a staff, and one idea that came up is we often take our politics, our political beliefs, and we put them on the same level as Christianity. So whatever party we prefer, whatever ideology or platform we prefer, we sometimes mix that with Christianity so much that we have a hard time separating where is the gospel and where is being a Democrat? Where is the gospel and where is being a Republican? So much so that we'll look down on someone who doesn't agree with us politically, thinking that's what makes them a Christian or not. And that's dangerous. That's a form of secretism. About 15 years ago, there was a couple Christian sociologists, they did a study on what was the predominant religious view of American teenagers. So keep in mind, this is back in 2005. Doesn't seem that long ago, but it was plenty of time ago. And they came up with this term to describe it, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Say that with me. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. You ever heard of that before? 
they would say that's the predominant religion of Americans. They believe that there is a God who wants you to be moral. That's the moralistic. He wants you to do a lot of good stuff, but not on God's terms, by the way, on our terms. And then the therapeutic part, we believe in a God who wants us to feel good and be happy. So as long as God makes us feel good, that's the therapeutic part. And then the deism part is a religious belief that believes in a God, that he created the earth, but he's not really involved in our world. So moralistic, therapeutic deism. And here's how they said it. Within this framework, God is a cosmic therapist and a divine butler. He's ready to help out when needed. He exists, but really isn't a part of our lives. We're supposed to be good people or moral, but each person must find out what's right for him or her. And good people will ultimately go to heaven, according to moralistic therapeutic deism. And we shouldn't be stifled by organized religion, where somebody tells us what to do or believe. My Christian faith is just one aspect of many things in my life. And so its preacher is American entitlement, and its sermon is a me-centered message about a distant, therapeutic God who wants me to be good and happy. By the way, do you think they got it right? Do most Americans, are they moralistic, therapeutic, deist? I think so. Let me go to the second problem. The first is syncretism we see. The second problem we see in this text is making God into our own image. And this is related to the first. Because we see with Micah that his mom solemnly consecrates money to the Lord to make an idol And I don't think they're just making a different God. I think they're actually trying to make an idol and through that silver idol, worship God. They're trying to capture God in the form of this idol, which is a problem. Because if you think about the second commandment of the 10 commandments that you should not make an idol or a graven image of some kind, one of the reasons why I think the Bible gives us that commandment is because If we made an image of God, does that image really capture who God is? Can we ever really capture who our God is in one single image or picture? And the answer is no. What it does is it flattens God. It distorts God. It doesn't really capture his essence. And I was thinking about this in relation to um, political cartoonists and caricatures. You ever seen those things? where political cartoonists will draw a political figure and they'll overemphasize one aspect of that person to the extreme. So here's a sample. Who's that guy on the left? Who is that? And what are they overemphasizing? His hair. Now, is Donald Trump more than the sum of his hair? Be careful now. (laughs) Or look on the right, who's that? Obama, what are they emphasizing there? He's a little bit harder to make fun of, by the way, I think, in his photo. But they're emphasizing his chin or his ears. I mean, I was Googling caricatures of Donald Trump and Barack Obama, and it was crazy. Some, some of Donald Trump's hair was like a tornado above his head, you know? And they draw these things because they're meant to be funny, right? They take one aspect and blow it out of proportion. Well, similarly, when we make God into an image, we are taking one aspect of God at some level and blowing out of proportion. We're emphasizing one aspect and not including every single aspect of God. It's like we've made a caricature. 
And so what Micah is really doing, you can change the slide. I think that's too distracting, right? There you go. (laughs) He is making God into his own image. And the question is for us today in 2020 as Americans, do we make God into our own image ever? Yes. We may not make a literal idol or statue to worship God, but do we ever define God in our terms? Do we ever try to take God and fit him in to what we want him to be like and to do? Let me give you some examples. For those of you who may not be a believer or on the fringe or know someone, do you ever, do you ever say things like this or hear people say, I won't believe in a God who does blank. I won't believe in a God who allows earthquakes and tsunami, tsunamis. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering and evil. I won't believe in a God who allowed this to happen in my life because he must not be a very good God. I won't believe in an exclusive God who says there's only one way, that's one way through Jesus Christ to heaven. That's too exclusive, that's too narrow, that's too intolerant. Or maybe you've heard people say, my God would never do that. It's kind of like the Oprah Winfrey God. Another way I hear this too, making God in our own image, sometimes we want God, or usually we want God to match how we feel about God. So we're a very feelings-driven culture, very happiness-driven culture, and and we want God to conform to how we feel in our hearts that he should be. And if he doesn't conform to that, we're going to redefine God. We're going to ignore some parts of scripture we don't like. We're going to redefine him so he fits how I perceive he should be. If you look at Micah chapter 7, verse 13, we see a way they, that Micah is conforming God in his image. He says this, now I know that the Lord will be good to me. Why? Since this Levite has become my priest. Now, just because he has a personal priest, does that mean God is going to bless Micah? No way. But we do similar things. We often think, you know, if I just do this, then God has to bless me. If I just go to church on Sunday and sit through one of Pastor Rick's sermon, then God has to bless my week. If I just give enough money, then God has to bless me and give me more money. If I just do this, then God will do that. By the way, that's making God in our image. That's actually a form of legalism too. We are very similar to them. Even though it may not seem as extreme as what Mike is doing, we are just like them. So let's go to chapter 18 now. Let's see how this syncretism in making God in our own image plays out on a bigger scale. And you need to stand for this. I won't have you stand the whole chapter. But let's stand for this. So we saw how it affects a household in chapter 17. Now we're going to see how this affects an entire tribe. So it says in chapter 18, verse 1, In those days Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites, so that's the tribe of Dan, of the tribe of Israel, was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And you know why they haven't taken their land yet? Way back in chapter 1, which I know seems like a long time ago, the Danites, it said at the end of chapter 1, failed to drive out the Amorites. They could have, I think, but they failed to do so. So they are on the hunt for land where they can officially settle. Verse two, so the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtiol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go explore the land. 
So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. So the tribe of Dan, Zorah and Eshchil is over here a little bit. Micah, this is over here somewhere. So they're just to the southwest of Micah. And the tribe of Dan was to conquer and take this territory, which they failed to do. But they came to Micah's house, it said, and then in verse 3, when they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levi. And I kind of wonder, how did they recognize it? Did he have an accent or something? I don't know, but they recognized it. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, he has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. Now, by the way, I don't think you have to be a biblical expert to know this. Is God really blessing their journey? Does this priest, this Levite, really have like some special connection with God that he can guarantee that everything's going to be fine? No. The whole thing is just really almost humorous and sad. Verse 7, so the five men left and they came to Laish, that's another city, where they saw that the people were living in safety like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. So if you look up on screen here again, so remember, the Danites, they're from down here. They were actually supposed to conquer this territory. You can read about that in Joshua. But instead of going there to conquer the land like they were supposed to do, they end up going all the way north. And here's the city of Dan, formerly called Laish, where they went. They went over 100 miles north to find a new territory, which they weren't supposed to go to because God had given them a different land. So they are not following the Lord's instructions here. So verse 8 when they returned to Zorah and Eshtael, their fellow Danites, Danites asked them, how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We have seen the land and it is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. And when you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing, whatever. Then 600 men of the Danites armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtael. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Mahanadan, or the camp of Dan, to this day. From there, they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. And you can be seated as we read the rest. So this group of Danites, armed for battle, 600 of them, is headed north to conquer Laish, and on the way, they stop at Micah's house, where the idol is and the shrine and the Levite. Verse 14, then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, do you know this, that one of, those house, one of these households has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. By the way, what do you think is going to happen here? He says, now you know what to do. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gate. 
The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 men, armed men, stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They answered him, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased, again, with the salary package and the benefits and everything. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? It's kind of funny that they think something, that they're surprised by this. And Micah replied in verse 24, you took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? By the way, this is really sad for Micah. He made this image. He has this priest. He has this shrine. That gets taken away from him. And he says, you basically took my entire life. What else do I have? Which, if you relate it to us today, whenever we put our hope in something else other than God or an idol of some kind, whether it's career or money or relationship or success, whatever it is, when that thing is taken from us, if we have that same reaction as Micah, then we know that we have put our hope in something else other than God. I mean, it just goes to show that idolatry will leave you empty. Verse 25. We're almost done, by the way. This is a lot of verses, isn't it? (laughs) The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish, that city way up north, against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and they burned down the city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anything else, with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of whom? Moses. And his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. And they continued to use the idol that Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. So one of the things we learn is that this place, Dan, way in the north, it becomes a center, a leading center, sadly, for idol worship in Israel. And it's one of the first cities taken when when Assyria comes in a few hundred years later and takes the northern half of Israel captive. That's one of the first cities taken. But an even sadder thing we learn is that this Levite, who's the priest, he is related to what important figure in history? Moses. So we know that Micah and his household should have known better to do this. We know that Dan, the tribe, should have known better. But this Levite, this priest, he especially should have known better. 
because he's related to Moses. By the way, we see another example of syncretism and making God in our own image. Remember the Danites were seeking blessing, and so they asked the priest and said, yeah, you're blessed, go. Do we ever seek God's blessing in our life and don't really ask him? Do we, ever, do we ever have our minds made up of what we're going to do, and we're just looking for God to kind of sprinkle on his blessing, you know, and say, God, bless my plans, rather than really say, God, shape my plans. Intervene. Change the plan. Boy, that's a scary question to say if you're a planner, isn't it? But this is a form of making God in your own image. When we want God just to sprinkle on his blessing, rather than really submit our plans to him, we'll hear whatever we want from God. Now, I know this is a depressing text, and wait, it's going to get worse in the coming weeks. But I want to end by talking about how do we avoid this? Because the point of this text is God does not want us to make him in our image or define him on our terms. He wants to be God in our life. He wants to be defined on his terms. He doesn't want us to bring him down and make him in our image He wants us to see him in all of his glory. So how do we do that? Well, here's some closing tips. I have four real fast. Number one, ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you personally are making God into your own image. Because chances are all of us do this. I do this and you do this, almost without even thinking. So ask the Holy Spirit to show you because we have blind spots. In fact, I want to give you just 20 or 30 seconds right now. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads and ask God right now to examine you and search you and say, Lord, where am I making you into my own image? So go ahead and do that right now. Father, we pray in these moments right now that your Holy Spirit would blow like the wind and show us clearly where we do this. And may we confess it to you and find grace and mercy and healing and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the first step, to ask the Holy Spirit. The second is when you encounter a troubling scripture or God does something in your life that you do not like, slow down and pray. If you live long enough, you will encounter parts of the Bible that you don't like, that really push back against you, that you want to conform to your image, or God will do something or allow something in your life that you don't like, and you're going to be troubled. When that moment comes, don't rush to judgment, but take it to God. Be honest with God, because first of all, he can take it. Just read the book of Psalms. Psalms encourages us to pour out to God. But the reason I bring this up too is that oftentimes when there's a part of God we don't like or a scripture we don't like, that's where we are in danger of twisting God into our own image and redefining God on our own terms. So when you encounter something you don't like, slow down and pray and ask God to help you. By the way, if God wants to be seen in all his glory and we have a real relationship with God, He's going to push back in our relationship with him. 
It's going to be normal that we don't always like what he's doing in our life. He's going to disagree with us. I mean, how many of you are married or have a best friend of some kind, all right? If you have a real living, breathing relationship with a spouse or best friend, do they always agree with you? I've said it before, my wife and I have a great relationship, but we even disagree on how to load the dishwasher. (laughs) Of course, I'm right. (laughs) Not true, she's not in here, so I can say that. (laughs) But if we can disagree and she can push back on that and we have a great relationship, shouldn't the God of the universe be able to push back? Because if God always agrees with you on everything, you don't have God. You have a personal assistant. Let's go to tip number three. Be aware of your cultural biases and blind spots. Now, this is really hard. (laughs) Yeah, be aware of your blind spots. But they're called blind spots for a reason, because we are blind to them. But be aware when you're reading scripture, when you're encountering God, we live in America in 2020, and we come at God from that perspective. We get offended by things that talk about God's judgment and God's wrath and God's exclusivity. We don't like that as Westerners. But there's plenty of cultures all around the world that don't mind that at all. They would say, that's normal. And they would have a problem with God saying, turn the other cheek, or forgive your enemies, or forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, is their culture more messed up than ours, or is ours more messed up than theirs? Well, the chances is both. Scripture always equally affirms parts of every culture, and it challenges every culture. Just because we're mad at something that God has done or in Scripture doesn't mean that our culture has the last word on it. In fact, this is why we need the global church to really understand who God is, because they will challenge our culture, we will challenge theirs, and from that, we will let God be glorious. (laughs) And then the last tip, tip number four, remember that God gave us the best image of himself, and who's that? Jesus. Because remember, Adam and Eve, you and I, were created in God's image, but we have broken that so many times, we don't reflect God. Israel was created in God's image, and they didn't do it. King David was, and they didn't do it. But there's one who did. In fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says it like this. The sun, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so when God wanted to reveal himself to us, he didn't give us a still image or a statue, he gave us a person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And think about how Jesus displayed God and he challenged that moralistic, therapeutic deism. By the way, when people ask you, what'd you talk about today? Just say moralistic, therapeutic, deism. That'll make you sound really impressive. (laughs) But think about how Jesus pushed back against that because he's the only one who is moral. He's the only one that can be perfectly good. And we are far below him. We need his morality to trust in that for us to be right in God's sight. He didn't come to tell us to be good. He came and told us, you're sinners. You need me to save you, Jesus And then the therapeutic part, Jesus didn't come and tell us just to feel good for feeling good's sake. He came and showed us the way to glorify God. That life is about giving God the glory and his mission. And ironically, when we do that, by the way, I think we're going to feel great. (laughs) 
When you put your eyes on Jesus and take your eyes off yourself, that is part of the solution for finding joy. And then Jesus challenged that deism part too because deism is the belief that God made the world and then kind of took his hands off and just kind of let it go. But Jesus Christ said, you know what? I'm not gonna let it go. I'm gonna come into this world sent by the Father. I'm gonna come in and live among you. I'm gonna die for you. I love you so much that I'm gonna get involved. When God wanted to reveal himself to us, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. The apostle Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus said in John 14, anyone who has seen the Father, anyone who has seen me, excuse me, has seen whom? The Father. Let's pray. I invite the worship team forward. Father, I pray that you would continue to prick and just poke our conscience this morning. Show us where we are mixing in other beliefs to Christianity and may we cut those off and renounce them in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, show us where we are making you into our image. Lord, show us our blind spots. Show us the parts that rub us the wrong way in Christianity and help us to embrace those things knowing that you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us. Father, I pray that we would constantly be a countercultural people, that we don't just take in what the culture believes, but that we shine brightly for you because Jesus did the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.